0: You're listening to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joelle Sandu. How do Americans look at the world? What is the American public's opinion on US foreign policy issues? What can help explain the divide in American politics? These are some of the tough questions our guest today tries to answer. To do so, she engages in conversations with American citizens outside the Beltway. And in this episode, she shares her main takeaways and impressions from these conversations. Julie Smith embarked on a journey to understand the concerns that preoccupy the American public. They range from issues such as U.S. relations with Russia to perceptions on migration and refugee issues related to the U.S. homeland and in Europe. She came face-to-face with diverging public opinions, especially in terms of the U.S. engagement in the Middle East and on questions of U.S. global leadership. In this episode, my colleague Torsten Benna travels to Washington, D.C. in America to speak with Julie Smith a Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Among the previous positions she's held, Julie served as a Deputy National Security Advisor as well as the Acting National Security Advisor on Foreign and Defense Policy Issues to the Vice President of the United States. She was also the Principal Director for European and NATO Policy in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and she was also a Robert Bosch Foundation Fellow.
1: Welcome, Julie. Uh, It's great to have you on our global futures podcast. And uh, we'd like to talk about uh, how America sees its global role going forward and what the futures are. And uh, you started an initiative uh, called uh, Across the Pond into the Field to bring allies uh, from Europe and uh, people from Washington, policy experts, policymakers to the American heartland to engage with uh, Americans outside the Washington D.C bubble on US foreign policy alliances and Uh, Tell us a little bit about the initiative and uh, how you came up with it.
2: Well, think tanks in Washington spend a lot of time either overseas speaking with our allies and partners around the world on multiple continents, or we spend a lot of time in Washington talking to other Washingtonians. And after the election of Donald Trump, I think a lot of us kind of sat in stunned silence for a few months and tried to figure out what our role would be in this new climate. And by new climate, I mean, uh, we were faced with an administration that had kind of openly declared that it was not as interested in the traditional elitist think tank views. And we were also facing a situation where we started to realize that Washington was, in fact, pretty isolated from the rest of the country because so many of us were so shocked and surprised on the left and the right that Donald Trump had actually won the election. And so we sat around for a few months processing what had happened and finally reached the conclusion that we needed to do more outside of Washington. So we sought some support uh, for a multi-year project. As you noted, it's called across the pond in the field. We partnered with GPPI, your institute, and set off to engage new sets of business leaders, students, local media, local politicians, really anyone we could find in 12 different cities across the United States. So it is now May, and we have been to three cities. We're about to go to our fourth. And we have learned a lot about how Americans look at the world, how they look at Europe more specifically, what gets them riled up, what doesn't get them riled up. But it's been very instructive, I think, not only to the Europeans that we've brought along on these trips, but also to the Americans uh, that we've brought along as well. And this project will carry on for quite some time. As I noted, there are 12 cities and uh, we're just three in. So it's kind of a stay tuned um, conclusion. It's not a scientific study, but we do have a couple of lessons that we've picked up.
1: what was most surprising uh, for you?
2: Well, the first thing, uh, the the first question we asked ourselves when we started this was, will anyone show up? Do Americans feel like hearing from national security experts from Washington or Europe? And how will we find these so-called people uh, that are out there in these cities? And what we found pretty early on after our first trip in Pittsburgh, and through some of my own personal invitations, I've had to come out and speak in faraway places, is that people actually are very very hungry to engage right now, uh, particularly on the question of foreign policy. It doesn't mean we all are in agreement about any particular issue, whether it's Iran or North Korea or Russia, but by and large, people do want to come out and have a conversation. And so I guess that surprised us in the sense that we recognize that Washington has a bit of a bad reputation. You call someone and say, hi, I'm from Washington. I want to come and talk to you. You know, sometimes the answer on the other line is, click. Uh, So we were relieved to see that people came out and were willing to talk with us. So I guess that's point one. Another thing that surprised us along the way is how politicized the issue of Russia has become. Polling data from the last couple of decades shows Democrats and Republicans largely in agreement On the question of Russia, whether or not they have a favorable view of the country or they're fearful of Russia, whatever the question is, there has not been a Democratic and Republican split until our elections in 2016. And now we have a situation where double the number of Republicans view Russia favorably as Democrats. And uh, on other questions, you see a pretty big partisan divide. And that was in the back of my mind, I think, but it became very real on these trips where we can see that when you bring up Russia in the conversation, it's like you're hitting a raw nerve and it becomes less about Russia. And it's more about our election and the validity of that election and Russian interference and meddling and all the rest. And then it just gets into some very bizarre twists from there. Democrats are accused of ignoring Mitt Romney's warning about Russia when He was running against Barack Obama and Republicans are accused of not necessarily taking the Russia threat seriously by a number of Democrats. And so you get into these awful um, back and forths and things get very tense very quickly.
1: Staying with Russia as this kind of partisan issue for, for a moment, do you think, and you served in the Obama administration, worked with Democrats and the Democratic Foreign Policy Establishment for a long time, do you think Democrats are doing themselves and the, and the country a service by kind of over and over again, you know, making Russia and, and the election such a big issue for them and, and, and pushing, pushing this, this issue if you talk to kind of uh, Democrats or uh, well, members of Congress that's very much on on their mind and uh, that of course makes it a, you know an, an issue that's identified with uh, with a with a partisan agenda because it's identified with the election of, of Donald Trump so do you st- do you, do you think that's a good thing and or is there any, any way out to bridge the divide and focus again on kind of n- not just Russia and election meddling, but also dealing with Russia as a strategic challenge for the Western alliance?
2: Well, I think what's odd is it Russia as an issue is so politicized outside the beltway, but in this town, it's not necessarily politicized. You can find a number of Republicans and Democrats in the field of national security and foreign policy that generally agree on the nature of the problem and the tools we need to tackle Russian aggression, for example. But Of course, it's viewed entirely through a different lens once you leave the inner city, you know, the beltway that goes around Washington. So yes, it has become kind of this democratic calling card that the Democrats are accused of overstating the threat and and all the rest. I think the secret is in not necessarily falling into the trap of talking about election meddling and talking more broadly about the geostrategic challenges that Russia poses and you know you can talk about the national security strategy of this administration or the national defense strategy both mention Russia quite prominently Mattis has spoken about this so members of the president's own team they've warned about kind of what Russia is doing, what kind of threat it poses. You can try we found in our trips to try and not comment on what happened in 2016, but to actually ask our European guests how they're experiencing Russian aggression, if they are at all, and what forms does it take, whether it's energy coercion or cyber attacks or disinformation campaigns, and try and drift more towards a pragmatic, futuristic conversation about what lays ahead and what do we need in the institutions that we've built? What should NATO do about Russia? And how can we still have a relationship with this country while also deterring future bad behavior? And if you frame it just right, you sometimes can maneuver your way through the politics, but it it becomes very, very difficult.
1: Do you have any signs that misinformation or disinformation campaigns on Russia and other issues uh, have been successful in terms of strange views taking root uh, with uh, the citizens you encountered?
2: Yeah, the, the issue set there where you encounter the highest number of conspiracy theories or mythology or falsehoods, whatever you want to call it, seems to be in the area of immigration and refugees, where our European guests, almost hands down without fail, are repeatedly asked about the safety of European citizens, whether or not Americans can be safe traveling to Europe. And this is rooted in uh, some of the real-time factual coverage they've seen about terrorist attacks in Europe. So i I understand that, wondering, you know, should I send my son or daughter to study in Paris, you know? But then there's a lot of misinformation out there about Sweden in particular, but also refugees in Germany and other places, countries with open-door policies. And there you're getting uh, a lot of really quirky questions about refugees acting out in violent ways or rapes that have occurred. And almost without fail, the person that's being asked the question, the European, can immediately cite the conspiracy theory or the disinformation campaign that's driving that question. So we do encounter those types of conspiracy theories on other subjects, but I would say the large majority of them are tied to questions of immigration.
1: What other questions did your European guests get? What other kind of critical remarks were they faced with?
2: Well, outside of the questions of immigration and refugee policy, of course, because the president has put a spotlight on it, we've had, particularly for some of our German guests, a lot of questions about defense spending inside the NATO alliance. Why are allies in Europe not stepping up and committing to the target of 2% of GDP? And Germany specifically seems to get or bear the brunt of a lot of the animosity and the the anxiety over burden sharing and the there's the sense that you feel when you meet with both Democrats and Republicans outside of Washington, that the burden sharing piece is, is getting worse, that America's doing more and more and Europe's doing less and less. And so we do find our European guests peppered with questions on defense spending. And then- Kind of in second place because, again, of what's been in the headlines, questions about trade tariffs, some TTIP questions, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Is it dead? Is it in the deep freezer? Are there any ways to revitalize it? Does Europe care? Or should we care? Um, some thoughtful questions on trade, but also, again, a little bit of misinformation um, about the trade imbalances and kind of folks missing the investment that many countries in Europe make in various corners of the United States, you think about BMW in South Carolina or, you know, all sorts of examples like that. They're less focused on those investments, um, foreign direct investments and more on the trade imbalance and what that looks like. Um, So yeah, that's been kind of interesting.
1: What's your overall sense from the conversations you had from the meetings uh, you had during these during these trips on what the sentiments are on America's global posture, if 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 you will, because there's a discussion here in Washington, of course, on American grand strategy. And there are those who are advocating that America is overextended and uh, that uh, you could use for example offshore balancing and not have these kind of massive true presence uh, around the world which costs uh, a lot of money uh, and spend some of the money at home and and still uh, still uh, make the world maybe even a safer place uh, because uh, it American presence uh, globally invites pushback from uh, from Russia and and China are these? Issues that are being uh, debated uh, in the country, and what what kind of opinions uh, do you hear on that?
2: Well, it's a it's a mixed bag, and we've only been again to three cities, so it's hard to judge uh, with any great certainty. But some of the oppressions so far, I mean, my my main impression is that American. Public opinion, much as the polling data can has shown in recent years, is very schizophrenic. There is this residual concern that we got in over our heads in Iraq and Afghanistan. But there's also this sense that we really got Syria wrong by essentially not engaging, at least for the few first few years of the conflict and that even now, as we engage mostly to address the Islamic State, we're not really playing a terribly effective role. So on the one hand, there seems to be this American determination not to overcommit, and there is appeal in what Trump puts forward as this American first um, mantra and a little bit of a retrenchment sentiment there. But on the other hand, there's also this sense that America must lead, and we can't—we cannot be perceived as weak in the eyes of the Chinese or our friends in Moscow. And so we're caught between this recognition of a special role, an interest in being seen as a leader on the world stage, but a hesitancy to overcommit or get engaged in rebuilding entire country, and also real mixed feelings about the use of force and what you can achieve with the use of force. So we're caught somewhere between not loving Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and the fact that we're still in both of those countries and also, you know, deep dissatisfaction with disengagement in Syria at the same time. So it's very complicated on any given day. It's it's, it's complicated
1: and paradoxical, but what advice would you give for NATO allies or uh, treaty allies in, in Asia? What should they be preparing for? Because uh, for them, you know, it's a complicated picture, but uh, allies need to take action and prepare for, for different futures. So should uh, European allies uh, prepare for a world uh, where the, uh, you know, unconditional security guarantee of the US is history? And uh, if so, how?
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, Trump, talks our president talks a big game about america first and disengaging and has done some of that but in many other instances he's doubled down in the other direction so if you look at support for the european deterrence initiative they've actually increased that number quite significantly in terms of making a commitment to european security they're not talking about pulling troops out of europe the remaining troops that we have there and so for an ally in europe for example it's just hard to know what to expect. I think you expect the unexpected. I mean, certainly his speeches are a good guidepost during the campaign, I mean, um, in terms of what promises he's made and what promises he wants to keep. But I don't know. I mean, we'll have to see. There's a NATO summit coming up. We'll see if he storms out of the room, you know, fish shaking at the sun, um, furious that allies aren't making the two percent and what he would do if he concluded they're not doing enough. But on the other hand, he also also likes to declare victory. And so for some allies, it's just a matter of repackaging old wine in a new bottle. There will be eight members of the alliance, in theory, that meet the 2% target at the end of this year. He could package that as a big win, pat himself on the back, forget that Putin was also driving some of that, and move on. And then the allies don't have a significant change in terms of US posture. But in other cases, as with the Iran nuclear deal, we've seen a willingness to walk away, even when our partner, ask us not to so it's it, these are tough times to navigate because there's not a lot of certainty he doesn't have a very well-defined ideology that he's following you know on one week he said we're getting out of Syria within weeks and days later literally, we were firing strikes into Syria. So it, it's just hard to know as an American. And I can imagine it's even harder for some of our allies around the world.
1: Do you have any advice uh, in terms of how to engage with the administration and beyond for our allies? You know, what are the most effective, uh, effective ways to get a hearing and uh, have an impact on, on actual policy?
2: Well, we've seen allies try different tactics. Um, We've seen the, you know, Macron approach of, you know, flattery will get you somewhere. But I I don't know if Macron still feels that that's the case. He's he has succeeded in developing a relationship with the president. They're on the phone quite frequently. That's worth something. I don't know if you have to trip over yourself to really praise him at every turn and throw out, you know, put him at the center of your military parade, but he clearly likes that. It's just from a policy standpoint it didn't really produce much change either on our commitment to the Paris accords, the climate agreement or with the Iran nuclear deal. So I think the the recommendation I'd have for allies is play it straight and stiffen your spine, look him right in the eye. He seems to like people that are direct. He doesn't want to be insulted and he doesn't want to feel like you don't respect him. But I think you can be honest and um, lay out, you know, in the three minutes you have when he's not talking, (laughs) lay out your argument and then try and develop positive relationships with those around him. You know, obviously Pompeo will be working more closely with our allies. Mattis has been very engaging with our allies. I just don't know about John Bolton. I suspect he's not going to be out in the world much, but certainly embassies here in this town can work to engage him. But, uh, but it's tricky. There's, there's no, perfect route. It's in part because Trump doesn't often know what he's going to do. And, you know, from one minute to the next, it can change.
1: I mean, the disconnect between the elites in the capital and uh, the people, citizens in the country out there is not limited to the U.S. It's also the case in Europe. Would you recommend uh, think tanks in Europe trying the same approach uh, that you pioneered with uh, the Across the Pond in the Field uh, program or are there any other ideas you've developed uh, in, in order how to bridge this kind of uh, divide between kind of uh, foreign policy elites that that have been used to just uh, you know having a conversation amongst uh, themselves and then having an effect on on foreign policy and uh, citizens.
2: Yeah, I do recommend this. It, it doesn't mean every think tank across Europe needs to develop a proper program like this. But to the extent that we all get invitations, I know I, you know, let's say two years ago, would often get an invitation on a Monday to come to Indianapolis and on a Tuesday, an invitation to travel, I don't know, somewhere in Europe for a conference. And for obvious reasons, because I wanted to expand my network and learn more about what was happening on the other side of the Atlantic, I would often accept the invitation overseas and now I think it's it's all of us should think twice about accepting more of those invitations to get outside our respective capitals and spend time with everyday citizens and you can do it as an individual just by accepting that invitation to go to Hamburg or wherever and maybe skipping the next event in Berlin or you can do it other ways when you publish a piece We often go to the same publications, the ones that are read by the elites, but thinking more about putting your next piece for us here in the United States in USA Today instead of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Accepting radio invitations or trying to secure invitations to appear on outlets other than NPR here in the US, again a US example, but you know what I mean. So trying to see if you can diversify the way in which you're getting your work out there, and uh, either as an individual or as an institution. And then for me, I'm also trying in each visit to kind of on the side, to the extent that time allows it, make a little pitch for public service, because I think increasingly young Americans are not viewing public service as, as a viable option or one that they would desire and trying to explain to someone in salt lake city or in pittsburgh why they should consider a career in public service is very important and we have to keep doing that and the same holds true for those working in berlin paris london or any other capital we've got to draw talent from outside the capitals from other universities we're trying to get intern applications from universities outside of the ivy league schools you have to give a little thought to it but you don't have to start a huge new project. Sometimes you can make small changes just by thinking twice about how you're conducting your work. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: This episode of Global Futures was presented by Joelle Sandu and Torsten Bena, and produced by Sonia Sugubova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest today was Julie Smith. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.